This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Thank you, Wynn, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm really excited to have a chance to talk to you all about the work that we've been doing in this area. Um, we're going to touch on topics today that span spending, debt, uh, uh, market-based solutions, and the health and financial welfare of working American families. So. The policy context that we're starting in is one of relentless growth in healthcare spending. And I'm not telling you all anything new. Um, this is the data on it. And so along the horizontal axis, what we've got is the last two decades. And on the vertical axis, what we're looking at is the percent growth in healthcare spending. This is nationwide healthcare spending. So this includes Medicare, Medicaid, and all private insurance. So in 1990, we start out with a growth in 1990 of 10%. And then the next, in 1993, we've got growth of about 8%, right? So each year, it's growing by each of these amounts, year by year. So it's fluctuated a bit over time, over the last couple decades, but it's always positive. So year after year, we're adding to the healthcare spending. That is not necessarily a problem. Our population is growing. So we would expect healthcare costs to increase over time. But the question is, how does that compare with the budget? Right? And these are numbers that are looking at the GDP. So again, national numbers at the GDP. And this is growth in GDP in each of these years as well. And what you can see is that the healthcare spending is growing faster than the GDP in every year except 1997. Okay. Um, and in some of the recent years where GDP has actually decreased, it's not hard to beat it in, in growth. Okay? So this means that the size of the pie is getting faster, is, is growing much slower than healthcare spending. And we can see the effects of this on the federal budget. Uh, it has the same effect on states and also on employers and on working families sitting around the table trying to figure out how to pay their bills. That is, healthcare spending starts to take more and more and more of the budget. So this is the growth as a percent of GDP, and we're now up to 18% of GDP is going to healthcare spending. The other parts of the budget get squeezed, and so we're either reducing spending in other areas or we're increasing debt. So there's been lots of activity trying to slow this rate of growth for healthcare spending. And while there's the, the uh, politically, there's been controversy, there's been legislative action, there's been controversy, there's been uh, now some moving forward, different kinds of controversy. In that same period of time, businesses have been dealing with this crunch for the last couple decades. And they've come up with some of their own solutions. So today I'm going to talk about one of those solutions. Um, and it's focused on a particular player in the healthcare system, right? So you've got insurance companies, you've got employers, you've got the government, you've got providers. This is focused on the patient. So the strategy I'm talking about is one that's looking at the patient and looking at that, those people to be the agents of change in this system. So here's the way the strategy goes. The idea is, is if we can motivate patients to act more like prudent, sensible, savvy consumers in their healthcare use decisions, 
then that can bring down spending, improve quality, and even bring down prices in the long run. That's the strategy. This is obviously a hotly contested idea. But let's just take it for a minute and say, okay, well, what does this look like? Where does this motivation come from? How are we going to do this motivating? And the idea for the motivation is to increase skin in the game, which is through the vehicle of higher deductibles. Okay, so I'm looking at the employer-sponsored insurance market. And a decade ago, more than half of people who got their health insurance there had a deductible of $0. And the highs were about 300 this is a sea change in the employer-sponsored insurance market. We're talking about deductibles for individual coverage of $1,000, $1,500, This is a huge change in employer-sponsored insurance. Those are all for individual coverage. The numbers for family coverage are double that. Okay, so this is the deductible before insurance kicks in with its usual cost sharing. Right? So there's still cost sharing above the deductible, typically, with co-pays or co-insurance, all those sorts of things. But here, people are paying out of their own pocket. So the idea is when the money is coming out of your own pocket directly, people are going to pay more attention to what care am I getting and how much is it costing me. That's the idea. Now, this concept is not new on the individual market. Right? We call them catastrophic plans there. And we've investigated some about what the effects of that kind of cost sharing are. But the thing that's really different here in the employer-based market is that there are these other bells and whistles that are trying to deal with some of the concerns about high deductible health plans. So one of the key ones of those are these tax-advantaged personal health accounts, health savings accounts, health reimbursement arrangements. In both cases, people have put money in, the employer, the individual employee, their family, and it rolls over from year to year. Okay, the health savings account, you take that money with you if you change jobs. The health reimbursement arrangement, you don't. It stays. The money's gone if you change jobs. So that is meant to try to help people with the increased risk. Right? The next piece is that they're often paired with information tools, decision-making tools, wellness programs, and before the ACA mandated it, almost all of these plans were having had 100% coverage for preventive care. So the deductible didn't apply to preventive care. All right. So again, this is trying to help with the concern that people will not get necessary care if they have a high deductible. And why does anyone go into these plans? Because the premiums are lower. Okay, you're buying less insurance. You're taking on the risk for the first thousand or so dollars before the insurance kicks in. Okay, so the premiums are lower. That's the structure of this strategy. And there's some real traction here in the employer-sponsored market. This is for large employers, so here I've got the last decade. And what I'm looking at is the percent of large employers, that's at least 5,000 employees, who were offering a high, one of these high-deductible account-based plans among the, the different kinds of plans that they offered. And you can see it's up past 50% of them. And the projected numbers for 2013, these numbers just came out, is that it's going to go all the way up to 70%. OK? So that's a lot of traction. Most employers are offering them with a bunch of other more traditional plan offerings. And currently, in the whole employer-sponsored market across the US, 19% of people have this type of coverage. That's a lot of American families. 
who have this kind of coverage that just surpassed HMO um, penetration, which is 17%. Um, so it's now more common for people to be in a high deductible account-based plan or consumer-directed plan than it is to be in an HMO. And what do we know about how these plans are going to affect these families? Not a lot. Okay, so there have been small studies out there, single employer studies, single insurer studies, and the insurance companies themselves have done some studies um, where, of course, they have a, a stake in this game. So there's always some concern, although most of those are well done. So what we do is we turn to the gold standard in uh, looking at the effects of health insurance to see if we can get a prediction for what the effect of these plans are. That gold standard is the Rand Health Insurance Experiment, uh, it was done in the 70s. They randomized people to plans that had different amounts of cost sharing. And so they had the cost sharing piece, but they didn't have the other bells and whistles. Okay, so just based on the cost sharing, what did they find? They found that people reduced care. So did they notice? Yes, they noticed. And what kind of care? They reduced both necessary and unnecessary care. So not necessarily this extremely prudent, sensible cons patient consumer that we were hoping for. Right? So people reduced both kinds of care. And we found that the way that they did that is that they just didn't initiate care nearly as often. All of that reduction is because of a, a reduction in initiation once people were in the healthcare system. So my example for this is if you have a bad sprain in your ankle and maybe you go to the emergency room, you have a follow-up visit with your doctor, you go to PT, physical therapy afterwards. That whole thing is an episode of care. What they found was that people reduced episodes. Once they were inside an episode, the costs were just the same. Okay? So this is what our prediction is based on that earlier study. This was from several decades ago. Lots of things have changed. And it was only the cost-sharing piece. They also found that even though people were reducing both kinds of care, that they didn't see many effects on people's health, except for the people who were most vulnerable who were both low income and sick. So that's a clear um, concern looking forward in these plans. So our key question, will this new generation of plans that have these other attributes have a similar effect or will it be different? Will the other attributes manage to change some of the, the negative pieces here? So just because there isn't research, it doesn't mean there isn't plenty of controversy. So to lay out the two sides of this controversy, I've got a couple quotes. And on the supporter side, on the rosy side, people are using words like empowerment, consumer engagement. Um, and they're saying that these financial incentives will cause patients to make more prudent healthcare choices. Okay? That patients will be more responsible, they'll take responsibility for their care, and they will seek and demand information. All right, so they're going to demand, and part of that will be a demand for lower prices and higher quality. So that's on the positive side, right, is saying that once people are engaged, patients are engaged as consumers, they can eventually actually change prices and quality. That's the plus side. Critics, on the other hand, are saying it's not a good term, consumer-directed health insurance. That's assuming an effect. And that what's happening here is just shifting costs. It's shifting costs from employers to patients. And that we're not going to see an overall reduction. That information on quality and price is complicated, 
very difficult to find. There have been a couple things just in the last few days um, that have hit the news about people trying to get information about cost and the long saga, long unsuccessful saga of trying to find a price. So there are some barriers to people being consumers in the healthcare field, and that's what critics are pointing to. And they're saying what's gonna happen is patients will forego needed care, and that that can lead to health crises, personal costs down the line, and to spending spikes further down the line that could have been avoided. Those are the two sides. So into this, Rand stepped in and carried out a large-scale comprehensive study. Um, so we're talking 60 large employers that were involved. Um, and for confidentiality reasons, we have agreements with the employers. I can't tell you who they are, but I can tell you what kinds of companies they are. So things like automobile manufacturers, telecommunications companies, fast food companies, major retailers, that sort of thing. So we're talking employers that have tens of thousands of employees. So we got data from these employers. Half of them were offering a consumer-directed health plan. Um, we wanted, part of our goal was to have a variety of different consumer-directed health plans. People tend to talk about them as though they're one entity, and they're not. There are a lot of different varieties of them. And we followed people for five years. And the basic structure of the study is that we have people who enroll in these high-deductible plans. They were in a traditional plan. They enroll for the first time in one of these high-deductible plans, and we compare their cost growth from pre to post to the cost growth of comparable families. So we did some matching across employers and families. Comparable families not offered a high-deductible plan. What was their growth over the same years? Okay, so I'm comparing the growth for, plans, for families newly enrolling and families who stayed in traditional plans. Okay, that's the structure of all the results I'm going to show you. The major chunk of this work was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the California Healthcare Foundation, and the follow-on work that we're involved in now was recently funded by NIH. So the key things we wanted to answer in this study, do these plans cut costs? And here I'm saying, are there real savings, or is it just a cost shift from one payer to another? If so, if we do see these, how? Is it the same thing where people just cut the number of episodes? Or are people getting inside there, inside that box? And do we see changes once people are working with the medical system? And the other piece of concern, how do they affect the use of necessary services, such as particular high-value preventive services? And this is our way of trying to take a look at whether patients are making clinically sensible choices about which care to forego if they're reducing their use. So this is taking the broadest definition of consumer-directed plans. Okay, so these are all plans that for an individual have a deductible of at least $500, which now we think of as moderate, right? And families that are twice that. They may or may not have an associated account. Uh, and so when we do that, and we compare this growth for people in any of those kinds of plans to the growth for similar families, spending is reduced by 14%. Okay, And then we started looking within that big umbrella of all plans, we started dividing them up into different kinds of plans. And the first cut that we looked at is plans with a moderate deductible versus plans with a high deductible. So this is breaking down that group 
Okay, we had that group of all plans with at least 500. We broke them down into deductibles between 500 and 1,000, and deductibles greater than 1,000, 1,000 or greater. And we see that there's really no effect compared to families and traditional plans for people with a moderate deductible. That has a star because it's the one thing I'm going to show you that is not a statistically significant difference. All the effect is in the plans that have at least a $1,000 deductible, and in that, for plans of that type, the reductions are on the range of 20%. Okay, that's a 19%. Confidence interval is your plus or minus about five there. Okay, so do we see reductions? Do people notice? Yes, we do. Does it matter what kind of plan type they're in? Yes, it does. Now the big questions. What is the nature of that spending reduction? Are those good reductions? Or are they problematic reductions? So we first looked at this episode question. So now I'm looking just at things that are more narrowly considered high deductible plans. So these are deductibles of at least $1,000 with a, a, a account, with an associated tax advantaged account. And for that type of plan, we see reductions compared to the growth for traditional plans of about 21%. It's a substantial reduction in costs. Okay? And we find that about two-thirds of that is because people initiate fewer episodes of care. Two-thirds of it. But for the first time, we have a finding that differs from the Rand Health Insurance Experiment, which is that a third of it happens within those episodes of care. So something different is happening once people are engaged with the healthcare system. And I want to lay out two scenarios for this. So we have two hypothetical patients. I'm going to call them John and Sarah. Okay? So we're going to have both John and Sarah who, surprisingly enough, both sprain their ankles badly. And they're both diabetic. So let's look at the choices that they make. Okay? So uh, Sarah sprains her ankle. It happens to happen on a Saturday morning. She calls the nurse hotline and gets information about what she should do. They decide she doesn't need to go in. She can do proper care at home, see if she needs to go in, and she's fine. Okay? John happens to sprain his ankle on a Tuesday morning. He also calls the nurse hotline. It's busy. He goes to work. That's the reduction in episodes of care that may have very different consequences. They're both diabetic. They both go to their doctors for the care they need as diabetics. Okay? And what did I call her? Sarah. <laughs> Sarah goes in and engages with her doctor, has a good conversation. The doctor is prepared to talk about changes that she could make in her lifestyle, in medication, in visits to specialists that would improve her health and reduce her need for health care. They have a productive discussion. Within that episode, her costs decline. John also goes to his doctor. That doctor is not interested in having that discussion. John tries, and it doesn't really go anywhere. And John gets the bill and says, I can't keep doing this, and he quits going. He doesn't get the recommended tests. Okay, Busy guy. They're both managers. He can't spend the time to figure this out on his own. It's complicated. Those are the two scenarios that we're looking at that could have very different consequences down the line. So what else can we learn? Within those episodes of care, we see that people in the high deductible plans are most likely to switch to a, more likely to switch to a generic. I color this bar green because we can almost all agree that's good. 
We also see fewer specialist visits. I'm coloring that blue because we don't know if it's good. And we see fewer hospitalizations. We don't know if that's good either. So that's the little bit that we know inside the episodes. Here's the other piece that we know, is that we pulled out among the whole universe of different kinds of care, we pulled out a couple things that there's pretty good agreement on that they're high value uh, preventive care. And we look to see, so are they making clinically sensible choices about this high value care? And you'll notice that my range is all negative. That'll give you a hint to start with. And I also want to point out along that axis that these are smaller numbers than the cost numbers. Okay, so along that vertical axis on the cost numbers, we had axes going down to 20% reductions. Here, when we're comparing about high value care, so these are two tests that are recommended for diabetics in particular. Um, in comparison to people in traditional plans, we see a drop. This is two of them. There are several more. We, it's, this is the same across all of them. And then we looked at cancer screenings. These are the things in this darker red that are covered at 100%. There is no cost sharing for these. And we see reductions in those too. There's small reductions, but that's the wrong direction. And for these ones, the cancer screening, it's the wrong direction for two reasons. It's the wrong direction for health reasons, and it's the wrong direction because it's exactly what they were trying not to incentivize with the whole design, right? There were two things they wanted to get across to people. You have higher, a higher deductible, and your preventive care is covered at 100%. People only got the first one. So it's a note of caution. So summarizing. Do they cut costs? Yes. Enrolling at CDHP causes a 13 to 25% reduction, depending on the plan type, in the first year, relative to families that stay in traditional plans. Okay? And that's total cost, regardless of spending, of, of payer. Okay? That's total spending for somebody's health care. How are they doing this? Two-thirds of it comes from fewer episodes of care. People are initiating fewer episodes of care. But the other third is a reduction in costs within those episodes of care. On the other hand, we do see a moderate drop in high-value preventive care, even though the CDHPs waived the deductible for that care. So from there, we wanted to say, all right, that's what happens for people in these plans. Okay, those are those 19% of the employer-sponsored market right now in those plans in the first year. What happens system-wide? What are the implications of this system-wide? So a lot of folks are saying that both the economy in general and the ACA will encourage CDHPs as an affordable option. Uh, so CDHPs tend to have lower premiums, so the Cadillac tax is not likely to apply. Uh, employers not offering affordable coverage will be penalized, so uh, these plans often fall under the affordable coverage guidelines. This tax on high premium plans starts in 2018. That's the Cadillac business. Um, and if we want to talk about the exchanges for a moment, the individual mandate will likely make affordable options attractive in the state exchanges. And my understanding is that there's some uh, positive feeling towards these plans on both sides of the aisle in the state exchanges. So the idea is, is that people are going to keep moving in this direction. So that's that early figure we had with we're getting up to 70% of large employers offering these plans and a higher proportion only offering plans of these type. So what's gonna happen system-wide? 
we project it out. If these plans grow from the 19% we have now up to something like 15 50% over the next 10 years, seems like it's in the realm of possibility based on the predictions that are out there. So in this figure, again, I've got time on the horizontal axis. And on the vertical axis, I'm now talking dollars. These are billions of dollars. And this is for the employer-based uh, insurance market. Okay, so everyone who's getting their health, health insurance from their employer. Um, and the yellow line is if we stay at 19%. Okay, so these are going to be the costs for the whole employer-based market if we stay at 19% and we don't change the proportion of people who are in these, these high-deductible plans. The blue line says instead of that, so we expect the relatively constant growth over time, the blue line says instead we're going to steadily up the, the enrollment in the CDHPs. Okay, from 19 all the way up to 50%. We're going to steadily up it. And each time somebody enters for the first time, we're going to drop their costs. And then after that first year, we're going to let them grow at the same rate as people in traditional plans. That's the assumption here, is that there's just a first time drop in costs, and then that they increase at the same rate. Some people think that's a quite conservative assumption, that the rate of growth will also go down. Some people think it's anti-conservative, that there may be this spending spike later on. But if we stick with that, more people tend to land on the conservative side, but then we're looking at a, a reduction of $57 billion system-wide for the employer-based non, uh, so the, for the folks under the age of 65 and the employer-based health insurance system, that's a reduction of 7% uh, of total costs. Um, and if you look for all of the non-elderly across the U.S., whether they're employer-based plans or not, that's a reduction of 4%. So a couple policy implications for costs. There is strong evidence from our study and a number of other smaller studies that CDHPs reduce spending for health care in the 13 to 25% in the first year. It has significant savings potential at the system level if this continues to, to grow. The big caveat here is that the effects in later years of CDHP enrollment are unknown, and there is this risk out there because we see reductions in necessary care for a spending spike if that, those reductions continue. Quality and access, where are these reductions coming from? Preventive services do decline, even when paid at 100%. So the ACA now requires that 100% coverage for all plans, and it's an open question. Will people understand it? So now that it applies to all plans, will providers and patients have a better understanding of that? Or will it be just as difficult to communicate that to a wider set of people as it was to communicate it to CDHP enrollees? So communication. Better communication is clearly needed with plan members and better information tools would help about decision making. So how is it that patient consumers are supposed to learn about their healthcare choices, the prices, and the quality? It puts a heavier burden on employers and insurance carriers to provide patients with that information. If employers want to keep their employees and their families healthy, they need to help them with this greater risk uh, of healthcare needs. 
In work I didn't present here, but that is uh, referenced in some of the materials that are outside, we looked at whether there were different effects for vulnerable families, those who are lower income or who have high cost chronic conditions. Um, and we don't see any different levels of decline. So when I was originally describing the kinds of employers we have, we have employers like fast food companies and major retailers who have lower income employees. And we did that very purposefully to see whether we see additional reductions for people who are lower income. We do not see evidence of additional reductions. Now a note, I mean, I'm talking about lower income, but these are folks with full-time employment and benefits. Okay? We also looked at folks who have high-cost chronic conditions. And again, we did not see larger reductions. There tend to be larger dollar reductions, smaller percentage reductions. Some people think that's good. Their health may be more fragile. Some people think it's not good enough. They're the majority of the costs. Okay, but there's no evidence of differences there. And again, the full extent of foregoing recommended care is unknown, and it could change over time. So we are doing, we have ongoing work. I hope you all stay tuned. We'll do our best to, to let you all know about it, to look at what the effects are in later years. So all of this is the first year. The big question is what happens after that? Do people learn about their plans? Do they get better information in price, about quality and prices? Or do they stick with cutting across the board? We want to look more at what the extent of foregone care is, and we're looking at evidence of price shopping. So thank you all very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.